0: Good morning. Welcome. Ooh, that's loud in here, that's good. Uh, glad to be with you guys uh, virtually, and a few of us here. I've uh, been asked to preach this morning and go for Chris as he uh helped lead the John class that was just before this. More information on that to come in the L O T C or Life of the Church with acronym uh, a little bit later. Um, we are continuing our investigation of Paul, if you will. Um, Chris has been, Pastor Chris has been teaching through points of Paul and aspects of Paul as given in the book of Acts. Uh, We'll be taking a a brief break from that to just look at um, a particular style of writing, if you will, of Paul from a handful of different scriptures throughout the New Testament Um, just to communicate a point of of his writing style that I think important to note. Uh, And also um, with that, a little bit of housekeeping, um, I'll reference a few different articles and put a couple of different things in here. Um, All of those uh, will be posted in the footnotes of the sermon text that will be available for you tomorrow. Um, I believe on our website and a couple other places if you want that, uh, please go there. Um, But the title of this sermon comes from one of those texts that I'll be quoting. And the title of that is On the Edge of the Inside, by Richard Gordon. But first, uh, let's take a quick story. In a recent story on National Public Radio, one reporter recounts his experience in Nairobi, Kenya. His objective was to understand why they were mass protests of the drivers of the ride company, Uber. The reporter captures the voices of those who were protesting in an interview. They were not being paid a fair amount for their services. Those in charge of the company kept too much of the profits of the labor of the drivers, and the drivers were left with barely enough to support themselves and their families. They were faced with a terrible decision. They can continue to work for the people who cashed out on their well earned money, or they could take Streets in an effort to raise awareness of their condition. It appeared almost to be a lose lose situation. On one hand, they can continue to work and be underpaid, yet have a meal on their table, or they can strike and cause a vacuum of need in the right share industry, empty the pockets of their overlords, and force their hand toward equity, all the while watching their own children starve. Yet, there is a glimmer of hope. The Kenyans found a third way, a way to work inside the system, a way to use the infrastructure of the system to subvert the system. Let me explain. Hailing a cab in a community that operates with smartphones, one can open the Uber app on their phone and request that a driver pick them up. After the end destination is put in the app and before you give consent for the driver to pick you up, an estimated cost will appear in the app for the total fare for service. As the driver arrives, one enters the vehicle, shows the driver the estimated cost of the fare, they then use a cohort and offer to pay a small portion less than the estimated cost of the ride. When the agreement is met, the rider cancels the ride in the app and pays the driver the agreed cost under the table. The driver effectively makes a larger margin of profit, the rider pays less for the fare, and the big person up top doesn't benefit. Some say that this, uh, some say that their methods may be ethically unsavory. But it does fulfill what could be a greater moral dilemma the vast inequity of power and money that starves some and benefits a tiny fraction enormously. This is a system that is subverted. Now, my working thesis, if you will, uh, with uh, where I'm going today is that Paul. Paul uses his power and influence to subvert the powers that are for the sake of the gospel. Paul uses his power and influence to subvert the powers that are for the sake of the gospel.
1: Um, Before we go there, I
0: have like three different uh, texts, if you will, that I want to look at to kind of support this idea. And there are many more, um, but there's just a a few that um, I want to look at today. Uh, Before we go to these texts and uh, look at why they might be subversive, um, I want to lay a couple of like round round rules, if you will. they are not an exhaustive list of things that kind of guide us through this thinking, but there are three things that have proven to be very helpful for me to understanding Paul's writing. One, uh, we do not see the subversive nature of Paul's writings when we do not understand the context and nature of when these scriptures were written. I think all of us can agree that sometimes we might think that the Bible can be outdated or not speak uh, in our our modern world. like It has no place um, for us today, and and part of my job, I think, as a youth director is is trying to understand the the context and the nature of these these scriptures and then uh, interpret it, reinterpret it for the youth today. not only just to show them the historical context, but also to make a case that a life following Jesus is one of the most punk rock things that we can do. Just punk rock is little uh nowadays, but I think it's one of the most punk rock things we can do. So first of all, we have to uh, understand that the scriptures—we have to understand scriptures, the scriptures in their historical context—and we have to do the work of loosing ourselves of our modern mind. And what I mean by that is the idea of presentism. As a history student myself at the university, there's this idea of presentism uh, that floats around in the historical world, and that is the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. Essentially like applying our 21st century mind back to a first century world. We come up with conclusions that just aren't accurate to the text. So we have to do the work of of understanding the Bible in its time and place and ridding ourselves of this presentist mind. So we have to understand the context. That's number one. Number two, like we've already discussed in, in, uh, in studying Paul, uh, Paul, as we see him in the scripture, is a person of great power and influence, uh, both as an outstanding student, a religious zealot, and so many more acquired things. We also must understand that Paul is a man. He's born into an advantaged background with generational wealth and privilege and upward mobility. Paul had an outstanding advantage over most all humans on earth in his time. So we've got to understand the historical context. We've got to understand that Paul is a person person of great privilege we also need to understand that subversion not all subversion is subversion for the good not all subversion is profitable I know it's a, a cute word if you all subversion it makes us feel like really cool but we have to understand that not all subversion is ultimately for the good only when subversion is used to bring equity and healing and the like is a good news This is a, a point for credibility in the message of Paul. Paul does not use his privilege to acquire more power for himself. He uses his privilege to diversify power and elevate others to his own place. So again, our working uh, guidelines for uh, these texts that I would say point toward Paul's subversion that we must understand the historical context, we must understand that Paul has a high amount of privilege, and we must see that Paul's ultimate goal is to elevate the human experience for the sake of the gospel. So, uh, three different texts, the first of which is from uh, the letter uh, to Philemon from Paul. Uh, we've looked at this letter in the recent past I have studying Paul just briefly, but it is remarkable in so many ways and uh, for one, I think that the work that it does to subvert the system of slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world. So, as Paul is, is penning this letter, he is uh, writing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, and Onesimus uh, is a slave uh, of Philemon. And he escaped Philemon, probably robbing him uh, during that time. He ran away. Somehow, Paul and Onesimus link up with one another uh, and start to move ministry together, but then it is time for Onesimus. Uh, Paul believes it's time for Onesimus then to go back to Philemon. But Paul writes this letter on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon, um, just stressing the point that Onesimus is a, tra- a changed person. He's now a follower of Jesus, in which Philemon was as well. And Paul attempts to compel Philemon, not out of religious obligation, but on the basis of love, to accept Onesimus back and no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother in Jesus. Paul even goes to the extent of asking Philemon, whatever whatever cost that you may have incurred from uh, Onesimus escaping you, all of those costs, put them on my bill. I would take care of that. So Paul is writing to Philemon on behalf of Nisimus, compelling him to take them back. And many raise the objection of the Bible that it does not do enough work of abolishing the system of slavery. Many criticize the Bible for not, uh, not really condemning it in its place and in its time. But I would, I would call back to the idea of presentism. In the first century world, slavery was so deeply ingrained in humanity that the people then thought it was, it was a fundamental law of the cosmos. That there was a hierarchy of human positions. There was a mother and father and children and slave, And this was like a stratified group of people, not all being fundamentally equal. Paul could have written against the, the whole construct of slavery in that time, but I think that it would have been useful. I don't think it could have been heard in that time and place. Instead, he operates within the system to bring it down. Instead, he writes as a follower of Jesus to another follower of Jesus, compelling them to ignore this construct and understand there is something sort of deeper and more fundamental going on inside the core core of a person. I think that Paul, as we've looked at in the recent past, he fundamentally believes it, that in Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. So Paul writes uh, in this way to sub- subvert the construct of slavery, not overtly trying to tear it down, not. Uh, writing picket signs in order to protest it. its its being in the world, but writing to bring it down from the inside. That's number one. Number two, uh, Paul writes to subvert the oppressive systems against women in this particular time. As I think we talk about often, in this time and place, women were not fundamentally on the same tier of existence as men. Um, we can make a like, very extensive case for why this is and exactly where women fell uh, in the world in this time and place. Uh, one thing I even <laughs> learned in studying this is that in this time and place, women weren't even given a first name. First names were not even given to women. So in the case of like Gaius Julius Caesar, he had a daughter. Gaius Julius Caesar, he had a daughter. And guess what his daughter Julia. It's taken from his father's middle name and given to her. So, that is kind of uh, some of the context of what's going on here in this world at the time. And on top of that, even more specifically, we're going to talk about the construct of marriage. Even more specifically, in the construct of marriage, most marriages were not for love, but were most commonly arranged for political, social, and financial reasons. And Goes without saying, those political, financial, and social reasons weren't for the mutual benefits of the couple, but only for the male. Women, in most cases, have little say in whom they marry. So Paul writes to elevate the position of women. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 specifically, Paul writes... This line, wives, submit to your husbands. And at that time in that place, in that reading, no woman would have ever batted her eye. They would understand that that is just the way things are. They would have even thought it was a waste of people for Paul to even affirm that particularity about the culture and time and place. But here is where Paul moves in a powerful way. In the later verse, just after that, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he then writes, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her.
1: This is the part, I
0: think, that slaps, as the young people would say, or this is the part that uh, we might consider woke, as also the kids might say. Paul is calling on the men of the church to serve their spouses in the same fashion as Christ loved his followers, the church. And if I recall correctly, Christ loved the church in such ways that he would bow down in a form of servitude even to wash their feet, reversing the power structure in that time and place. And if I recall correctly, that means to love, and a love that is so deep that would be compelled to prove itself even to death and death on a cross. So it's a pretty radical charge for Paul to give to the husbands at this time. That means that in the way of Jesus, men can't continue this oppressive system against their wives, which was acceptable in that day and age, but rather the system would be upended for the sake of good news and equity. So Paul writes in these subversive ways to upend the system of slavery, subversively, He writes in these ways to upend the system of oppression against women subversively. And thirdly, Paul writes to subvert the empire, the Roman Empire. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we read this There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in you all. Now, in our 21st century mind, uh, in our country that uh, has the liberty of exercising free religion, uh, we might view this passage as almost purely a theological position, It's about the unity of our faith, the oneness of our faith. It's about the monotheistic position of the Hebrew and Christian faith. It gives us language to understand what we believe, language to understand and and talk about our beliefs as followers of Jesus and what this whole Christianity thing is about. But to the ears and the eyes of the readers in in the first century, they might read a lot more... Religio political assertion from Paul. And let me explain a little bit more what I mean. Uh, In this time and place, of course, in the Greco Roman world in which the Bible is squarely fitted in, it happens in a time and place uh, which is called like the Pax Romana uh, or the Peace of Rome. It it was a time of uh, Roman history that they experienced in the Mediterranean world at at a time of uh, relative tranquility and we know the Mediterranean world is being a place of uh, deep conflict even uh, in, in our modern day um, so in, in this piece was was came about by Rome as they would conquer other peoples they wouldn't upend all of their systems they wouldn't totally uh, annihilate all of their, their culture and time and place they would allow them to keep their religious beliefs they would keep, let them uh, keep a little bit of their national identity all the while putting a few things in place. They would pay taxes to Rome. They would uh, be influenced by their Hellenistic culture, their uh, Roman Greco culture. Uh, and lastly, they would revere Caesar as a lord. And if I know anything about Christianity, we believe that there is only one lord. And I think that Paul has no problem even like uh, operating within the system, he doesn't, he doesn't care, he can, talk, he can talk the talk, he can walk the walk, he can pay the taxes, those things uh, to him aren't deal breakers. But when he writes this letter to the Ephesians, he makes it clear that there is there is one God, there is one Lord. Again, Paul doesn't write in such a way saying, hey, we are going to sacrum, we're going to tear this thing down, we're going to upend the system all for the name of Jesus. He is not overt in that way. Instead, he writes, there is one Lord, almost giving a week to Caesar, only one. So Paul writes in this manner, in this way of being inside the system, pushing for progress, pushing for good news. He writes against slavery and the oppression of women. He writes against the empire, which is a pretty radical thing. All of this was kind of inspired by a text that was shared to me by Richard Rohr, again with the title of the pain, On the Edge of the Inside. Rohr writes, Prophets, by their very nature, cannot be at the center of any social structure. Rather, they are on the edge of the inside. They cannot be fully insiders, uh, but they cannot throw rocks from the outside either. They must be educated inside the system, knowing and living the rules before they can critique what is non-essential or not so important. Rohr writes that Jesus did this masterfully in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 34, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. taught the United States, this is what Gandhi taught British occupied India, and it is what Nelson Mandela taught South Africa. Only with great respect for and understanding of the rules can a prophet know how to properly break those very same rules. For the sake of the greater purpose of God, A prophet critiques the system by quoting its own documents and constitutions and heroes and scriptures against its present present practice. This is their secret. Systems are best unlocked from the inside. Systems are best unlocked from the inside. Now for us, I think that like I'm willing to bet my money on it if you will, uh, that Most of us in this congregation, just where this church building sits in the valley, that we experience potentially or have more power and privilege than most of the rest of the entire world. Just like Paul. We have more privilege and power than most of the rest of the entire world. And I was so deeply reminded just recently when we had a graduated student who came to do the prayers of the people not too long ago, and inside of this prayer, he was kind of praying through uh, a scripture from Matthew, telling of this, of this person passing by a blind man. The blind man calls out to have mercy on them and heal them. And I think really to bet that most of us are more likely and more often the person passing by a blind man begging for help, we're more likely that person than the blind man. I think that we are more likely and more often the person centered in the narrative that has access to the resources. I think that we are more often and more likely the person on the inside of the system with the tools to remove the bricks. And my question for myself and all of us today is, is what are we doing with our power Here's one more example, not, not a religious example if you will, um, but I think in some ways it's a spiritual example. Uh, it comes from a local business, uh, a brewery in fact, uh, situated in downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, Fisher Brewery, they opened up just a few years ago, and uh, much of the microbrew community, if you know it well, um, is kind of like this macho man aesthetic, like mountain man, rugged, car heart wearing, uh, kind of place and it kind of naturally just attracts that very same individual. Kind of like a niche, one particular person is mostly invited into the space. But they have chosen to go a different route and I think it is so interesting. They have chosen to uh, like wave rainbow flags, um, just indicating to the LGBTQ community that they are welcome there. They have chosen to open up um, classes for, uh, for brewing, and specifically for women, to make headway uh, for women to get into this brewing community that's uh, typically overrepresented by, what, by males. You see the owners of this establishment uh, bussing tables and cleaning the bathrooms, and all the while, they're never too busy to stop and throw a celebrity shot at the corn bowl table on the patio. I think that their very existence this type of structure that seems so opposite and backwards, and inclusive. This, this, uh, the very existence of this place uh, makes waves in our community. I think it it kind of subverts the status quo and gives a better story. This is just one particular example uh, from in Salt Lake City. I think it's so awesome. So many of us re- uh, recognize that. So many. Uh, people from the salt lake area and outside the salt lake area respect this place so many people from our congregation even and a favorite place of, of ours this is just one example of what it means to use our power and privilege to widen the door widen the gate elevate the human experience for all of us and thus bring headway for the gospel for good news in our communities and in the world around us We need more examples of what it means to to make waves and do things differently. We need a little bit more inspiration. Uh, Stay tuned specifically to the PCUSA this week. Uh, It is their week of action. You can follow them on on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, on uh, PCUSA.org. And they have daily, um, like, vignettes, highlights of of what's going on and how we can enact, enact change in our world. But all of this to say, from Paul's writing, does a fabulous job of diversifying power and including all humans. I think that we can use our privilege um, to continue the status quo, uh, or we can use our privilege to change systems from the inside out. That we can use our power and privilege to propagate the same news, um, or we can bring, we can bring. radically good news to all of them. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you are a God who who is out to love us all. We thank you that you are a God who is deeply, deeply interested in us. A God who most equity and healing, God, we just pray that you would inspire us as a congregation and to bring this good news to our world. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.